We uh, starting back into our series that we started just before Christmas about here's your sign, looking at the signs of the Christ that John gave us in his gospel. Signs inform us. They give us information. They teach us something. They give us a perspective. And sometimes we are guilty of not paying enough attention to, to signs we should be paying attention to. And sometimes we're guilty of not looking at signs closely enough that we should look at. And I think, unfortunately, the truth is, is that as we read through the book of John, some of these stories or these miracles become so familiar that we read through them and don't really grasp or even consider what his intent in sharing them was. John shared seven miracles in his gospel to us so that we could see Jesus revealed. And so as we go through this series, we've been asking the question, what does this tell us about Jesus? What does this say about Jesus? What does it reveal about Jesus? What does this sign show me about Jesus in his, in his character and in his identity, in his power? And so even today, you know, well, let me just, let me bring back and put us back in the right frame of reference into the frame of mind. We've, we've studied through the first two signs that he recorded, and the first one was the um, changing of water to wine. That's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. And we can read that passage, and probably if you've been in church uh, growing up or even for any amount of time, you've heard it talked about, and it's easy for us to move past this idea that water is not the same as wine at all. It doesn't, in fact, you don't ever get wine from water. There was a molecular change. There's something amazing had to happen for that water to change to wine. It wasn't an, it, it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't, it wasn't a process by which someone fermented water and got wine. It doesn't happen. There was a, m- a miracle that happened, and we learned in that passage that it revealed Christ's glory. We saw Jesus' glory revealed. Then we see him heal a, a royal official's son, and we saw his word had power without him even being present. And so we see, you know, something amazing and then something a little more amazing. He's got the power to heal, but he doesn't even have to be there for it. He doesn't, even have, he doesn't have to go in the room. He doesn't have to put his hands on anyone. His word has power. And it, it, brought, it brought great power in this family's life. And because of it, people believed in him and came to know him as their savior. And today, even today, we're going to see just one step further and one, one little bit greater amount of Jesus' work. And we'll, we'll get to see his identity revealed. We're going to be in John chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. If you want to read along, the verses will be on the screen. If you've got a smartphone or an iPad or something, you can look online. And I've got at you version. we've got version live up. And you guys can look there and follow along with the notes as well. But we're going to be in John chapter 5, and it's a pretty familiar story. It's something that you have heard before. Jesus heals a paralyzed guy who's at a pool that that he's with a bunch of other people. When when these people would gather around this pool and they'd see the water stirred, and there was a tradition that it was an angel that stirred it, and somebody would try to get in the pool, and it was thought that the first person or the first few people that got in the pool would be healed. We don't know if that's really what's happening. We don't know if it's true. I mean, for us, it's almost like the, the healers that, that come to town, you know, like those tent revivals where the healer comes with them. We, it could just be something people say, you know. I mean, there could be some semblance of power. There, there could be something happen. We just don't know. And we're not saying, and John, as he shares where this guy's at, he's not saying 
this is truly happening. All we know for sure is that this is where this guy's at. Jesus comes in and heals him. That's the passage we're going to be looking at, but we're going to be asking. We're going to be looking intently. What does this tell us about Jesus? What can we see about Jesus? So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 5, we'll start reading in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now I want, you to, I want to put you in the frame of reference. I want you to be there with me. This is a lot like a nursing home, I think. I mean, this is a place where sick people gather. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that it probably doesn't smell good. There's sickness here. There's death here. There's, there's, there's people. I mean, this is not a nice place. In fact, like nursing homes, you think about nursing homes. I think we avoid them. I mean, how many of you go to nursing homes on a regular basis? But you know somebody there probably. The two, just so you know, if you didn't look around, two people in the congregation raised their hand. Two people. You know, I, I think why we don't go, I, I think I understand why we don't go. And I used to do a nursing home ministry, and so trust me, I understand it's not a fun place to go. But I think the reason we don't go is because a nursing home brings all the worst, uh, the, the worst truths about what it is to be human into living color. I, you cannot walk into a nursing home without recognizing your humanity, your absolute lack of control on your life, your lack of ability to truly make a difference in, in, in what you're going to become. When we're young, and, and most of us in this room are, are, are fairly young, and either at the begin, be, beginning of a career or the middle of a career, and we think we're making our lives count. We're working hard, you know. We're, we're building careers. We're building a future. Ask some of the people that are elderly that are here. Your body begins to fail. I, got, I think I got arthritis in my shoulder. I'm only 40, and I, it hurts to lift stuff when I stretch my arm out straight. What's it going to be like when I'm 50 or 60s? I, I can't squeeze. I used to be a mechanic, an aircraft mechanic, and I used to have this grip that I could put my boys on the floor and squeeze their hand, and they just fall on the floor screaming. I loved it. <laughs> I think they did too. That's why I did it to them. But the reality is that grip, it, that, my grip, it, it's weak now. In fact, my, my pointer finger. I work with a computer now, my pointer finger. I think I got arthritis in my pointer finger. It hurts. I bumped it into a wall the other day. I'm 40 for crying out loud. What's it going to be like when I'm 70 or 80? I can just barely remember my birthday. What's it going to be like when I'm 90 if I make it that far? The reality is I'm not the only one with this issue. I'm not the only one facing this problem. We don't go to nursing homes because whether we like to admit it or not, we don't have control. We don't have power to, to really affect a difference in this world and in our lives. We are dependent creatures. And we're faced with that reality when we go into a place like this. And so just imagine, this is a place where people aren't going because they like to be there. They're going because they need to be there. And it's not just a few people. It's not like us here, just... Just, just maybe 60 people. There's a multitude. I think what that word means is there's a bunch of people in the vernacular. It's a whole bunch. Many, many, many people. 
This is not just a small gathering. A lot of people who are sick are at this place. And they believe. They believe that by going there, they have an opportunity to find healing. They're there because they have to be there. Because they don't, find, they don't think there's any other place to get it. Let's keep reading John 5. Five through seven. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, 38 years, that's a long time. I've been dealing with my pointer finger for about a year, and I'm tired of it. I'm done. It's sore, and it hurts, and I'm just done with it. This guy, for 38 years, he'd been an invalid. It means he was probably paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, and said, he said to them, he said to him, do you want to be healed Come on, why else would I be here? I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but Captain Obvious, I mean, what's, why would you ask me that? But I think in the answer, we really learn something about this man. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. This guy's here, but he's at the, he's at the bottom. He's at the bottom of a deep, dark pit, and he sees no way out. He's got no hope. He's just existing now. He, he doesn't even know to long for anything more because all of his answers, all of his perspectives, and, and his, his ideas about what could fix him, it's all tied up in this pool. There's nothing he can do. You know, I connected us with a nursing home early, and I want you to realize your own mortality because I want you to connect with this guy. That's a tough, tough truth. But if you're in here and you're 20 today, there's going to be a day when you're 40. If you're 30, there's going to be a day when you're 50. If you're 60, there's going to be a day when you're 70. And your mortality is racing at you, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. This guy thought he had an answer in this pool. He thought he had a place to turn in this pool. And so he was there with no hope of ever getting in. It's empty, just in a dark, dark, dark place. I, I, I don't want you there. I, I don't want to be there. He's lost all hope. And he has no idea. He has no idea what... Is about to happen. He has no idea who this man is that's talking to him. He has he he may have heard of a man Jesus. He may have heard of a guy that's working miracles, going around the countryside, doing these amazing things. But this is not the YouTube generation. There's not videos he's pulling up on his iPhone and seeing what he looks like. There's not there's not flyers going around town saying the healer is here and, and you come to this place and, and and he'll heal you and with pictures plastered of Jesus all over. They, they didn't have that. Jesus had already made a name for himself by this point. Jesus had already been doing many miracles. In fact, his his following had begun to grow so much. That he'd left Judea. In fact, if you read in John chapter 4, you learn that he leaves Judea and goes into Galilee because his following was so large that he went away from Jerusalem, that he, he left this area. The only reason he's here today in, in, this, in, in this passage is because he abides by the law and there's a festival that requires him to be in Jerusalem. So he shows up. 
And he walks in and he sees this guy, this guy who has no idea that his world is about to be rocked. His world is about to be changed. Right now he's sitting in, in this deep, dark place. I can't be healed. I can't ever get to the pool fast enough. My legs don't work. Maybe, maybe he couldn't even move his arm. Maybe it's from the neck down. He's laying there, just a, a vegetable. Just able to sit there and think and wish. I wish I could get to that pool. I wish I had somebody that cared enough about me to put me in the water. And here he is talking to the man. The man that could change it all and was about to. Let's just keep reading. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. I don't know if the guy was feeling the surge. I don't know if he was sensing the change. I don't know if he was in the midst of this happening as he hears these words. I, I, I don't know what his experience in this moment was. 38 years since he'd been able to do something like that. 38 years the average life expectancy was sometime somewhere in the 40s. Almost all of his life is, is here, paralyzed and invalid. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, at once, immediately, without hesitation, at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. When Jesus said these words, it was immediate. It happened. Whatever was broken, whatever nerve was severed, whatever didn't work in his body was fixed. 38 years of atrophied muscle. 38 years of atrophied muscle was given strength. I don't know if you've ever watched a kid learn to walk. But this guy got up and walked. He may have never taken a step in his life. And he got up and walked. He was not, 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 not only was he fixed, he was given strength, he was given ability. And he wasn't just carrying himself, he said, pick up your bed. And, we, and you know how we know he did it? Because the Jews got so stinking mad. And we don't have to wonder if it happened. They got angry. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be carrying your bed around. What kind, of, what kind of heathen are you? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think if something like this happened to me, even if my finger quit hurting, I think I'd be so excited that I'd forget what day it was. I don't know if I'd know what day it is. I mean, if it happened to me right in this moment, I might just go home, forget that I'm preaching. That's how exciting it would be. It'd be great. This guy is healed. He's fixed. And this, this life of hopelessness is turned around. And, and, I mean, we can't move forward without even, with, without talking about the reaction. What should be a moment for everybody to celebrate becomes a moment of offense, becomes something that offends people, that makes them angry, that bothers them. They should see this guy who's been laying there for a long time. What in the world happened to you? What, what just happened? You were lying there a minute ago. You couldn't even get to the pool. What happened? And instead, they're bursting this bubble. Hey, don't, 
Don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. I should I should know. I, we really should say here that before we're too hard on the Jews. I mean, the Jews they were really doing their part to protect the Sabbath. I mean, if you think back to our last series where we went through the seven festivals that God gave them, the Sabbath was the day that separated the Jews from every other culture. It, it as God established the Sabbath with them. He told them, this makes you a holy people. This is what makes you distinct. So we should be glad that the Jews were protecting it with all their might. But the problem was that as they began to protect it, they started to wrap it up in their own little rules to keep them from breaking the real rules. You see, God never gave a long list of do's and don'ts on the Sabbath. He said, set the day aside for me. It's holy. Consecrate it for me. It's a day of worship. There's certain, some, certain things that you can, you're to do and some certain things you're not to do, but he didn't give this whole long list. Well, they had this whole long list of all these rules that they could and couldn't do. What they had done is, it's, it's kind of like a zoo. If, if, you've, if you've ever gone to the zoo, and I'm sure most of you probably have, there's cages that keep the animals in, right? Those cages protect people from the animals. But inevitably, some idiot stuck his arm in a lion cage and got it ripped off. And so not only do they have the cages, but they got the fences back here to keep the people from the animals. And what they'd done is they had put their cage up. They understood God established the cage. He, he keeps us in the Sabbath. He says this is what it looks like to, to uh, abide by the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath. But they're like, oh, that's not quite good enough. We need our fences to keep us from falling into danger. And even that by itself is not that bad. I would say if you struggle with some sin in your life, if you're an alcoholic, set up a fence. Don't go to a bar. If you struggle with porn and, and, and you just can't seem to get past it, set up a fence and, and begin to look at how, how you can have accountability in your life and how you can, how you can keep from, um, uh, maybe you just have to get rid of the internet. Maybe it's that drastic. Set up a fence. There's nothing wrong with that. But what they began to do was act as if their fences were the same as the cage. You see, they, they began to think that their law was equal with God's law. And they began to hold the people accountable to that. And they, they got offended when they saw this amazing miracle in the midst of a Sabbath day because they thought their law was so important, so powerful. And they, they tried to hold this guy accountable to it. Well, let's keep reading. But he answered them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And I don't know about you, but if a, if a guy comes and says, your finger's healed, now go home and take the day off. I'm going to go home and take the day off. I'm, I'm just going to do it. I probably will listen to him. They asked him, who is the man that said, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. You see, the reality is, is that, that this guy has this miracle performed. He doesn't even know who to say thanks to. He doesn't know how, who to show gratitude to. He doesn't even, he has no understanding at this point. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, this doesn't look like gratitude to me. Doesn't look like he's thankful. Hey, I found him. He came and talked to me again, and, and here he is. 
But listen, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the guy was in trouble for picking up his mat and walking or picking up his bed and carrying it on the Sabbath. Now Jesus is in trouble because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is big. It's huge. And it tells us, I mean, it, it, it reveals to us some amazing things about Jesus. It, it just, you can call me Captain Obvious now. The first, I think the thing that's most readily apparent is that Jesus heals. Jesus heals. I mean, he has the power not just to, to walk up to a person and, and say, get up and walk, but he has the power to actually see them get up and walk. It, we saw it a couple of times. Uh, in the last series, the last part of this series, we saw it. He, he didn't just, he didn't just uh, heal the boy that was sick. He just said it. He didn't go there. He didn't, he didn't follow the guy's instructions. He just said, hey, go. Your son's going to be okay. And the boy was healed. And, and what he's just done, it's not the flu. It's not like, it's not like I, I had malaria a few weeks ago. Man, I tried to get just the most out of that. I had malaria. It's not malaria. This guy's been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus heals him. I mean, this is what he's known for. This is one of the things that, that sets Jesus apart from everybody else. Matthew records the, the arrest of John the Baptist. And after John the Baptist is arrested, he's beginning to struggle and doubt. And he, he's got some of his followers around him, and he's like, hey, Go, talk to Jesus, and find out if he's the one. Is he really the one? Now, remember, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And he proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was used by God to make these proclamations. He's in the midst of some great suffering and some struggle. And he finds himself doubting, and he sends his people to find Jesus and ask. And this is how Jesus answered. In Matthew eleven five 5 through 6, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is known for healing. This is what he does. He goes into cities, and he heals people. There's some, some places in the, in the Gospels where it says that he didn't just heal one or two, but he healed everybody in the city. And he didn't do that here. But the truth is, is that Jesus heals in just a few moments. Jesus is going to be challenging the Jews' perspective on, on what they believe and, and how they view him. And he says himself, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The testimony that Jesus has is greater than the one that John the Baptist has of uh, uh, telling or proclaiming that he's the Messiah. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. See, the reality is, is that I don't think we should limit this phrase or this terminology, the, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. We shouldn't limit that to healing. But we shouldn't mark it out either. We shouldn't deny that it refers to that also. 
So the reality is that there's a much bigger thing going on, but Jesus is referring to his power. And in the context, I mean, this is just a few moments later. In the context, it's difficult to deny that Jesus is referring to the power to heal. And I know, I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious. I, Jesus heals. Really? Tell me something I didn't know. I think the reality is that sometimes, the, sometimes we say we know it and we say we believe it and we think it's true. But then we get up and we, get up and we live our lives a, a little differently. We don't live in line with what we say we believe. Well, which one do you, we really believe? See, first, I think this has a couple of implications for us. I, I think first, I, I think we should expect Jesus to heal physically. I think we should be praying for God to do this work in his people. I, I think it's wrong for us to assume that that's done and over. Man, I've, I've heard stories, and we long to hear it from overseas. I've, I've, I've known people, and known people well enough to trust them, that have, have given me reports of dead people raising. Man, that just, why doesn't that happen here? Maybe, maybe it's not God failing. Let me say that differently. It's probably not God failing. Or maybe we just don't really believe he can do it. When you're sick... The people you should be calling out to first is not your doctor. I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. Please go to the doctor. He may heal you through your doctor. But you ought to be talking to your church family, which means you should be so deeply and intimately involved in a church family that you're free and able to talk to them about the struggles you face physically. And be willing to admit that you don't have it all figured out. That you can't fix yourself. That requires a level of intimacy that requires us to be involved together. Trusting that God will heal. Now I'm not saying it's going to happen every time. It, it probably won't. There was a multitude of people here sick. And Jesus walked up to one guy that we know of. And healed him. Doesn't mean he loved the others less or was less concerned or didn't have anything for the others. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think that you're worthy of healing. It simply means that it's not his choice to heal you. And be okay with that. But we should expect him to heal. And I think we should expect him to heal much more often than we expect him to heal. And honestly, I think it should be a mark of his people. And second, I think we should recognize that spiritually we, we've been given an eternal life that's healed us. We, we've been given this life that, 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 that demonstrates we have been healed. Christians, we should live like we've been healed. I mean, like that guy who got up and walked, who was able to pick up his mat, we not only have had our problems internally, spiritually fixed, but we've been given strength to walk. We, we've not just been given the strength to, to walk in this path. He's given us the ability to do it. Listen to this passage from 2 Peter. If you've been in our church, you've heard this recently, at least a couple of times in a couple of the studies we've done. 2 Peter 1, 3, 3, 4. His divine power has granted to us all things. Now, pay attention to the all. It's important because it leaves nothing out to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent 
through Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through the gospel that he brings us and gave us, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of a sinful desire. Do you hear what that says, Christian? Your spiritual issues have been fixed. You have been given strength to walk as you've been called. You have been made able to walk as you've been called. And the reality is this, Christians, we are no longer victims, but victors. We are no longer a victim of sin and the nature that robs us of the glory that God intends for us. We are victors. We have been given the victory. And I think we need to realize that Jesus heals this big so that we can get up and walk in this victory. Know it, believe it, walk in it. Trust it for your life. You don't have to struggle. You're going to struggle. It's, it's earth, not heaven. But in that struggle, you have this promise. You've been given victory. You have been healed. Thank God that Jesus heals. For that obvious truth, Jesus heals. Thank him. Thank you, Father. But Jesus heals mercifully. This healing, I especially think in John, God wants us to see this. And I think that's why he encouraged John or influenced John to, to point out the name of this pool or where this pool was at. It's the pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda translates house of mercy. We don't like to admit this, and we don't, we don't want readily to admit this, but we deserve nothing from God. In fact, there's this whole mentality, this whole thought that God owes us something, and so we look around the world and we see horrible tragedies like the shooting at Connecticut. Or we look at horrible acts against people like rape and, and molestations of children. Or we think of evil people like Hitler, and we think, how could there be a benevolent God if, if he allows this kind of evil? That idea, that perception assumes that God owes you something. The truth of the Bible is God owes us nothing. Mercy is about a holding back of judgment. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a choice to not give condemnation or not allow someone to deal with what they deserve. It's a, it's a desire to, to, through compassion, to give someone something that they couldn't get themselves. To relieve suffering. But God doesn't owe us that. And when we begin to realize that God owes us nothing, the question changes. Well, we no longer ask, why do bad things happen? Why do evil people exist? But why does anything good ever occur? This is a world that should be wrought with chaos. Never a moment's peace, never a glimmer of hope. Should be, every person in the world should be like that guy at the pool. 
at the bottom of a deep, dark pit, not realizing it has any hope. But God, in his mercy, in his great mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ. And when he heals you, when he heals you, when he, when he fixes your spiritual problems, he's doing something for you you don't deserve. And he's withholding his judgment and his condemnation. And he is saying to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. I love you and you are approved and accepted by my grace. Jesus heals us mercifully. That guy had never done a thing to deserve to be healed. And his physical healing is just its a beautiful example of our spiritual healing. He really deserved to be there. We all deserve to be there. But Jesus heals us mercifully. Jesus heals even while facing persecution. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that the Jews were going to get ticked off. He knew that they were going to be mad. Don't, don't think he didn't know. He withdrew. He knew that the, the place for confrontation, the time wasn't thin. He faced that persecution, and Jesus didn't cower from the confrontation. You know, I, I think we can learn something from this. We've got this, this sissified view of our Savior. Man, I think we need to think past that. Jesus was not a people pleaser. He did not placate to the desires of mankind. Jesus, he, he didn't live in fear of men. He didn't look at them and think, oh, I better not be too confrontational. They may not like me. Or they might kill me. Jesus didn't let the perspectives of men determine how he was going to act. The, the reality is, is that Jesus was a rebel. In every sense of the word, Jesus was a rebel. He rebelled against every human authority. Now, I'm not giving you permission to go out and rebel against every human authority. The reality is you've been called to submit to authority. You know why Jesus could get away with that? Because we're going to talk about it in a minute. Jesus was God. He had all authority. All authority is, is his. He, it, they're supposed to be submitting to him. You see, Jesus could stand there in this, in this rebellious fashion, standing in their face, healing on what they thought was their Sabbath, commanding a guy to do something they thought was horribly sinful because he knew the true meaning of the Sabbath and what it was all about. And he knew that he wasn't calling that guy to sin. He's challenging them in their own perspectives, and he knew he would face persecution because of it. In fact, John tells us this was why. You see, in this chapter, we really begin to see Jesus being hated. He'd been loved up to this point in the book of John. There was a point of his ministry that people just loved him. They followed him. They went after him. In this chapter, we begin to see Jesus being rejected. But he healed in the face of persecution. He healed even though it would require his life. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That doesn't sound good to me. It doesn't sound like something I'm running into. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The reality is that sometimes walking into, in God's mercy brings us in direct conflict with the world. Jesus faced it. This man who was healed, he just received God's mercy. His mercy had been poured out all over him. This man is persecuted for it. The apostles, they faced it. The people that followed the apostles and listened to the apostles' teachings, they faced it. People were killed because they believed in Jesus, because they rejected the Jewish lifestyle. And there's some horrible things that happened to the early church at the hands of the Romans. Horrendous, because they said that Jesus was Lord. As they walked in mercy, they experienced persecution. I don't know why we would think our lives should be any different. I, I'm afraid that sometimes we are too willing or too desirous of being nice to the world rather than walking in the mercy of God and letting them see the difference. We're too scared of confrontation. We, we live in fear of men. We want too much to be liked by them to find their approval. And I'm not saying that this gives us the right to go around and be jerks. I'm not saying that you should pick up your Bible and walk up to people hitting them with it. I'm not saying that, that we, should, we should live in such a way that, that, that we are offensive simply because of the way we act and our attitude. But make no mistake, when the truth comes in conflict with a lie, there is confrontation. We should be being rejected for the gospel and for our love of God and for our desire to see him glorified because that is a direct conflict with a world that wants to worship itself. If you're being a jerk just for being a jerk's sake, you're in sin, repent. But if you're being rejected because you are following hard after Christ, glory to God. Glory to God. Walk in his mercy and you're going to find yourself in conflict with the world. Not always, but, but often. One last thought, one last point to make. is in that last verse we see it. Jesus heals with divine power and authority. Uh, we can't miss this because the Jews didn't. Not only was it the Sabbath that upset them, but Jesus claimed to be God. That upset them. We don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to think that, oh, this is just some theologian's interpretation. No, the Jews wanted to kill him for it. You're making yourself equal with God. What that means, in their sight, God is one. In their perspective, and they understand that God is one. There is no other God. And as soon as Jesus says, I'm doing the work of the Father, I'm his son, and they say, oh, he's equal with God, that means he's God. That's a huge claim. Huge. And that claim, you've heard it before, you've heard it from C.S. Lewis, but Jesus' claim to be God reveals him to be a lunatic disconnected from reality if it's not true. I mean, I get a little silly sometimes, but I'm never going to claim to be God. I try to live my life like I'm my own God, but I'm never going to stand up in front of anybody and make that claim. I know better. And we know that Jesus wasn't crazy. We know that by the, the, the Jews' rejection or, or rejection of his claim, but also the reaction. They didn't treat him like a crazy man. They didn't act as if, oh, 
That's just Jesus. He always says that stuff. He's crazy. No, they wanted to kill him for it. They didn't think he was crazy. They knew he was lucid and he was totally connected to reality. It scared the bejesus out of them. It scared them. They didn't know what to do. And they, oh, that's blasphemy. We've got to kill him. We've got to get rid of him. If it didn't, if he wasn't crazy, if he wasn't a lunatic, then Jesus claimed to be God, reveals him to be a liar if it's not true. And obviously, that's what the Jews thought. But he's lying. It's blasphemy. He's not telling the truth. But look at the power. Look at what he did. Look at the profession of John the Baptist. If you were to read the rest of this, this conflict and the, the teaching that Jesus brings, you're going to see him refer to John the Baptist. You're going to see him refer to the prophets. You're going to see him refer, well, not just the prophets, but all the Old Testament scriptures. You're going to see him refer to his, his uh, connection with the Father and the work that he does. And all three of these things point to the fact that this just might be true. In fact, I think that the real choice what Jesus tells us is that his claim to be God simply means he's God. And here he stands in front of these people, having healed a man mercifully, having demonstrated his power and him being put on trial for it. And here he stands. I'm God. You submit to me. You walk under my mercy. I'm going to give my life for you, though you reject me. Believe in me. Follow me. Trust in me. That's the call he's not just making here in this passage. It's the call he's making to every one of us today. To trust him. To follow him. To walk in light of his truth. Christian. It's your responsibility to do something with that. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you're gracious, you're loving. We know, God, that we are desperate in desperate need of your mercy. We know that apart from your healing, we'd be stuck. But God, sometimes we struggle with walking in that same truth and living and abiding in that same place. And God, I just pray that in these moments, you'd bring that truth front and center in our hearts, in our minds. Help us to see those places where we cower. Help us to see those places where we don't walk in the light of your mercy. Help us to see those places where we think we've got it figured out and can control it ourselves and don't look to you for your work. Help us to see how the depths of our depravity, the depths of our fallenness are doing what it can to pull our attention and our, 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 our focus off of this truth that you have healed us. You have healed us. And remind us every day of the promise we have that we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, I pray that in these moments you would just do your work through your spirit, that he would rest on us, bringing conviction and encouragement as, as he sees fit. Father, that as we stand up to, 
to move from this, that we would walk in victory. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.